In this episode, we'll be talking to Paul Isaacs, who is a autism advocate and public speaker trainer. We'll be covering topics such as autism and education, public speaking, and a bit about employment, as well as dabbling a bit into the Disability Expo and a lot of other interesting topics. We hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Banked Up in Series 2. Um, we have a guest on this episode, and um, we'll be talking about autism and education, a bit of employment. Um, Mrs. Paul Isaacs, Paul, would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Yes, hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, my name's Paul Isaacs. I've been an advocate for around 13 years. Um, my work uh, professionally is as a, a speaker, trainer and consultant, which I've also done for, for 13 years initially, working with a local organisation. Um, but now, uh, currently I work for uh, a charity in London called, uh, or uh, CIC actually, organisation, non-profit organisation, let's get that right, called A Second Voice um, as a consultant and, and trainer. And their connections have recently helped me um, in the early fledgling period of um building up my my business um paul isaac's consultancy limited which is um me basically having a business and being more self-sufficient and doing autism uh speeches and training and, and consultancy so I've, I've been doing this for quite a long time <laughs> so um what's that like sort of having a consultancy business doing like, I guess teaching businesses how to um have employees with autism is that along the lines with on the right lines? It's a mixture with including what you've said. So um I I, I do go into employment services. Uh, initially when I first started it was um going into schools, so going into educational services, so schools um talking about my experience personal experience of being in education um, information processing challenges learning difficulties that come with autism um i've trained general practitioners police um hospital once but that was for a family member uh, i've also been at various charities and, and organizations um autism specific uh charities and organizations and also with my consultancy that's been a mixture of one-to-one -one work working with uh, uh families um offering support advice whatever is needed and that kind of flows into what i'm doing currently with a second voice where i'm actually speaking to parents about um different aspects or different things they want to know about autism specifically in the context of um their, their children it's, it's young children that um go to these uh they're, they're, it's a summer scheme that vanessa's currently doing during the summer this year which she has been doing for many years and i i go to the the places and obviously parents can be in the safe place 
safe place to talk to me because their, their children are, are doing other things. So that's what I'm doing currently. But it's really been a whole mixture of different places and people I've trained over over the last decade, really. It sounds like you have quite a, a mixture of different roles and things that you do. Um, so why did you get into that? It was by chance. So I was doing voluntary work at an autism base in 2009. And I just so happened to see an advertisement for young speakers to uh, around the local area uh, to speak about their experiences on the spectrum. Uh, that was pre-diagnosis. So I, I went through the mental health system in 2007 as an as an adult i was 21 and i got a, a plethora of diagnoses um schizotypal borderline personality disorder psychosis um auditory uh, hallucinations so i was quite poorly at that time i had a nervous breakdown so this was a, a few years prior to that and i trained to be a speaker so I was around 23 24 at the time uh, I got diagnosed formally in 2010 uh, in in the March I believe uh, with autism and obsessive compulsive disorder uh, so that was how I became a speaker it was literally just through chance of being in the right place at the right time uh, where I was doing uh, voluntary work so things just happen and I certainly didn't plan to be a speaker or a trainer that wasn't on my <laughs> that wasn't on my agenda at all as, as a career okay did you know for did you suspect for a while that you had autism or that something wasn't quite right maybe was there uh, kind of yeah I mean it, it it goes way way back to when I I was very young, uh, my parents' observations. So I, I was born in 86, um, and part of my autism, it's a mixture of different things. So part of my autism is uh, developmentally in terms of trajectory was prematurity. So I was born a month premature. Um, I had cerebral hypoxia, so I had brain injury. Um, due to a placental abruption, which was out of my mother, mother's control and, and mine. Um, she almost had a blood transfusion. So it was all very, um, it was all very quick and sudden. Um, she was on the toilet bleeding and then she was in hospital. My father took her uh, to hospital. I was put in a skaboo because I had jaundice. And around six months into my life, my Mum initially thought I was deaf and blind, um, but it wasn't that I was physically deaf and blind. It was to do with the neurology. So it wasn't my sensory organs at all. It wasn't my eyes or ears. Um, it was to do with the way in which my brain was accessing or not accessing language, auditory uh, and, and visual uh, perception. So I appeared like a deaf, deaf, blind child, even though the mechanics of it were completely um, the other way around, it was to do with the brain. Um, and when I got to preschool, I could only get, I had a very narrow 
bandwidth of meaning. So that meant that I was about 80, 90% meaning deaf. So words were just phonics. Words were just sounds that people made to each other. Uh, everything was fragmented and distorted. I was face blind. I was object blind. I was meaning blind. So what that meant was that my visual field was all shattered into pieces. Um, so if I focus on one bit, I'd lose everything else. Focus on another bit, I'd lose everything else. So that was objects, people, places, etc. So I was a very tactile, kinesthetic child. So I used to lick, sniff, tap, rub because I was externalizing to internalize. So that is how I, 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 I presented as an infant. And I didn't gain functional speech until around seven or eight. So I was around year four and it was functionally of a three-year-old. It wasn't um, developmentally in tow with what my age was chronologically. But asking whether I um, suspected autism, I suppose um, when I went through my adult mental health assessment, um, that, that was spoken about. Uh, but the real reason why I got a diagnosis was probably more to do with crisis than anything else. I was in a mental health crisis. So in, in a sense, uh, that was why um, it, it was uh, pursued, the diagnosis. But when I was younger, it was, it was apparent. It was clear that um, I was autistic. It, it, I was just not in the, the, the sphere of services. I wasn't in the sphere of specialist education. Uh, so people didn't necessarily know I was autistic at that point in time. I went through CAMS when I was 11 or 12 of depression. Um, I read my notes, which were quite uncomfortable to read. Um, they picked up on learning difficulties, but they were more going around um, the attachment disorder route. So um, basically, the attachment disorder is at least the context of what the specialist was saying that is that they had to keep an eye on me um, because so social workers may have got involved. Thankfully, I, I didn't stay at that um, hospital for, for a second period. And that was uh, before I went to secondary school. So that just gives you an idea, a bit about education, but also a bit about my developmental trajectory and how I presented and what my uh, language and visual perceptual world was like, which was quite messy. <laughs> um, Paul, I have a question for you. So before you started public speaking, yes. was there a turning point for you where you were like, you know what, I want to talk more about autism and create more awareness. What was that first turning point or experience that you had? I think that was when I stopped using cards to actually speak. Initially, when I spoke um, in audience, to audiences, it's with cards. And it was um, the moment in which I threw those cards away was when I was able to sort of speak more, more freely. And I would say that that was in about, I, that was built up probably more in 2011 and 2012 when I wanted to take this venture more seriously. Uh, I initially met 
um, a lady, well, it was a speech I went to in 2009, a lady called Donna Williams, who's sadly not with us anymore. And she was diagnosed in, in 1965 with childhood psychosis, which is what they thought autism was. Um, she went uh, for a two-day assessment at a paediatric hospital. Mum thought she was deaf. There was nothing wrong with her hearing. It was to do with language processing. And then she got the, the, the diagnosis. And what I found with Donna is not only was she very, very articulate and very, very... Um, knowledgeable she's also very forward thinking about autism so I got connected with her on Facebook and then she mentored me to some degree about autism and what it was and um, I liked her style of presenting but I equally liked her style of how she shared knowledge so um, I would say from 2011 is when I, I took it much more seriously about being a speaker um, and speaking about autism. Um, so, like you said, that uh, you didn't start uh, like speaking normally until around age eight. Did you have to go through like speech therapist or um, like more rigorous uh, retraining of how to speak, or did it come along like you just built up your normal speech naturally? Yeah, so my speech prior to that was echolalia, which is not unique to autism. All children go through uh, echolalic stage of language. It's how you build up language. The reason why I was still in that echolalic phase was because of the language processing disorder, the aphasia, um, where I was just hearing phonics and not hearing sounds. So naturally, if I didn't hear phonics and I... Uh, I, I, did, I, I treated language as sounds, then I was creating my own language, um, sort of an egocentric type of language, which you do see in toddlers, but again, it was prolonged. Um, no, I didn't have any interventions from speech or language therapists. Um, the interpretive world was very difficult for me to access for obvious reasons. And also visual perceptual challenges meant that... Um, uh, around 60 to 8% of human beings are pictorial thinkers, so they think visually. And that's followed by 20% uh, of people are word-based thinkers. Now, because I don't have uh, a visual memory, and that's to do with the visual agnosias, the visual perceptual challenges, it's a condition called amphantasia, which means no mind's eye. So I wasn't able to marry up the visuals with, with the words. So that actually elongated and prolonged the, the challenges around language. For example, if you were to say to me table, um, I would think of the, the, the sensory aspect of a table to know that it was a table. In fact, to give you a more tangible example of that, I was speaking to a speech and language therapist many years ago, and we'd done this memory game. And she said, think of a church. Now, she could think of a, a generalised sort of church with a roof and a, a cross. Um, but she said, right, you do the same thing. So I thought of a specific church where I live and I think of the, the blades of grass and the texture of the stone, um, the grains of the, the, the heavy door, the smell of the church and she said right can you bring these things all together and I said no I can't I can only think of um, the church in pieces so grass stone door 
and there's loads of things I know I'm missing, but that is my memory of a church. Um, so that affected how I associated with language completely. So when expressive language came, um, it was stilted. It was like wading through treacle because my pattern, theme and feel language, that's a term used by Donna, where it's patterned and it's themed and it's felt flowed like butter. But as soon as I was transitioning to interpretive speak, which is, as you put speaking normally, um, it, it was um, it, it, an arduous task. You know, if someone, if I was to say, hello, Al, how are you then? every word would be sort of overtly pronounced, it would be slowed, it would be stilted. Um, so it took me a very long time to actually get the interpretive um, threads and strands of speech. And actually, when I did start hearing my voice in that way, um, I wanted to go back. I was so desperate to go back because I hated the sound of my voice, not necessarily for embarrassment. I, I wasn't, it wasn't a self-conscious thing. It's just, I didn't like it and it, it felt foreign to me. Um, it was far easier being in inertia and being um, um, in, in, that, in that world, um, that world where it's a cage, but it's also a sanctuary at the same time. Uh, the difference between a cage and a sanctuary, I suppose, is in sanctuary, you can go there and you can be, but when it's a cage, it's um, it, it's something entirely different. It's a, it's a place of, um, you know, forced solitude. Mm. So there was a lot going on in terms of development and emotions, but certainly um, it was an, it wasn't easy to get speech. Not, not how I'm, people don't realise when they hear me now at 37 how hard it was um, to, to actually get functional speech. Um, it, it actually does. And honestly, uh, uh, I also uh, lack the mind's eye. And I think you're the first person I know of that, uh, like that that experience is very very close and similar to me although like when you picture the um the church uh you mentioned the blades of black grass and the wall um i don't see that much mine is less like little images little sensory things and it's more about the feeling like i can feel a church i can feel how it looms above me a large building i can feel the inside a large empty room that's quiet and yet people are bustling and hushing around so oh yeah yeah that with the with the blades of grass i'm not seeing them i'm remembering literally how they felt so the the tactile kinesthetic so i'm not getting any images i'm just getting uh, different sensory experiences that are completely separate, but about one thing. Um, hopefully that, that makes sense. But yeah, it sounds very similar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's just very interesting. So thank you. You're, you're very welcome. Yeah. So I have a question about ed the education. So the first part of the question is, do you think autistic children now have a lot more support and it's better than when you were in school? 
Uh, yes, I would say in comparison to me, um, it, it was better and things are on the up. There are other issues such as funding and difficulties with funding in the NHS. And when you go from borough to borough and county to county, you tend to get uh, different opinions of what the services are like. But if you're specifically asking me about it in comparison with my experience with education, um, yeah, there are parts that are much, much better in terms of uh, the teaching style was different in the in the late 80s, early 90s. There was a lot of aspects that were, were completely uh, different, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I like to think that things are slowly improving in terms of awareness and advocacy. Um, it's something that is going to have to be an ongoing thing rather than something that stops. And uh, the advocacy movement is is a mixture of different things. There are there are good things going on within autism advocacy, but also there are very toxic things going on as well. And it's kind of wheedling through what what is what 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 one actually wants as an outcome. Um, and why they're actually doing advocacy in the first place. That's what I find anyway. Okay, and uh, going off of that, what would you do in the education system? Like, what would you improve? Well, I would improve that just the, the, the basic knowledge of autism needs to be um, accessed by, firstly, by people who want to learn and have empathy. I don't think empathy can be taught. I think it's something that is just inherently within a person or not um but going on to the second point in terms of understanding what autism is this goes into the the aspect of uh the the fruit salad thing um that i was talking about so donna's fruit salad analogy of autism is that no uh person on the spectrum is, is the same so that would mean that if no one is the same and no despite having a shared diagnosis, you would have different strategies. So for some people, it might be that they're face blind and they may, um, and I've worked with face blind kids uh, on the spectrum where they um, may recognise you by your hair or by your glasses or by your shoes or by... Um, a familiar item of clothing or earrings or maybe they need to sculpt your face to know it's you which is what I used to do when I was younger because I'm face blind as well or maybe they've got language processing challenges which I've spoken about and the way in which you break down language has to be significantly different uh, maybe it's the fact that they've got a condition called social emotional agnosia and do not read body language, facial expression or tone of voice. So all they see and hear is facts. Even if they're in a social situation, all they're seeing and hearing is facts, words. So they may have social anxiety or they may find um, that the, the, it triggers or induces phobia of being social because they're not getting these cues that other people are getting. Uh, for others, it could be dyspraxia and information overload and motor coordination challenges. And um, then you can have learning difficulties as well, dyslexia, 
dyscalculia. So it depends really on what the fruit salad, as Donna would call it, is. You have to be a detective and work out what piece is happening. And then from what piece you start building up strategies. It's it's very much an empowerment model. It's about sharing information and using it. Um, so if one understands the system of the child or the even a teenager or adult, then you build up from there. You have to be open-minded and diligent, I suppose. And actually, from a philosophical point of view, you have to be... Um, acceptance of your own failure i always feel failure is is such a word that is um that isn't fully understood i think failure is needed i think in order to fail that is a learned experience if if you do a strategy that is wrong to see failure as a friend rather than something that is um inherently bad then you you try something else and then try again or maybe you have to accept that you're not the right person for the individual. Um, your skill set doesn't work, or maybe your communication style is is grating on on the individual. So it's about being honest about yourself and your own limitations as well as your um, abilities, and also at the same time um, taking yourself out of the equation. It's not about you. It's about taking a back step and thinking about them so hopefully that answers that it's, it's it's kind of a philosophical thing really yeah that makes sense definitely um over over your uh years and as much as you've learned about autism and you've met a lot of people have you um noticed signs or characteristics of like I mean, perhaps someone who may be autistic but didn't know it um or kind of you recognize signs in other people that they may not recognize themselves you can well, you can break that down i suppose you can get some non-autistic people who have autistic personalities um so you can get some people who have who are very conscientious and logical and literal and pragmatic and uh, very much career-driven and driven by achievement. And if we think about Temple Grandin, I would say that she's extremely conscientious. She's an American lady on the, on the spectrum. And then you have people, so that's conscientiousness. So that, that isn't necessarily autism, but it can run along um, with someone's autism in the sense it's their personhood. And all human beings have around four to six personality types. So I have to question what I'm seeing first. Am I seeing um, a similarity in information processing or am I seeing a, a similarity or a difference in personality type? Um, other personality types that are common in autism is idiosyncratic, so that's not being like anyone else, being unique, being original in in thought, in dress, in... in um, emotion in imagination and then you get people who are solitary who are asocial or, or not very socially driven or are asexual or, or um, don't need a, a lot of people around them to make them feel 
socially or emotionally fulfilled. Um, you can get people who are avoidant, who uh, are very self-conscious and, and get easily embarrassed, um, uh, want to do the right thing, etc. So what I do when I meet someone, it, it's effectively a blank slate. Um, I'm meeting an individual for the first time and I'm going to get things wrong. But I can see things as if people start talking about their life or about how they view things or see things. But again, I have to marry up what, what are these things? Are they just uh, personality types or are they something more? Uh, are, are we going into the areas which I, I spoke about earlier with um, information processing? Is it more to do with those things? But yeah, I, I suppose over the years, I, I think of one individual who springs to mind where I worked at my first job and she used to work on the delicatessen and looking back now at our conversations and how she was treated by her peers. Yeah. She, we, we kind of had similarities that, that, that meant that we, unfortunately we were also getting treated similarly, similarly by, by staff. So that's what I weigh up. That's a consultant in me. I have to weigh up what, what this is and where it comes from. Thank you. That's all right. What is, um, uh, what's the purpose of your glasses that you wear, dark glasses? Oh, the dark glasses. Yeah, the dark glasses are, uh, uh, to do with a few things so um i i got diagnosed with visual perceptual challenges in 2012 and what that entailed was was a test with light with color which is frequencies of light so the glasses aid with dyslexia and, and dyscalculia um and also by extension of that, I have visual perceptual challenges. So one of the things I have is a condition called somalt agnosia and, and visual associative agnosia. So somalt agnosia is uh, almost like tunnel vision. I don't see, and by extension, I'm face blind. So it, it's seeing things in pieces, not holes. And what the glasses have done, um, is when we sorted out the colours with the specialist because it's individual um, to each person, the the colours, is when I put the glasses on, I was able to see things as holes. I was able to see things with coherence. I was able to see um, uh, things uh, glued together rather than him shattered into pieces. So what this done is this aided with body language. Um, it actually freed up the information processing to actually hear language better. So I'm able to do the shared sense of social for much longer um, than I was without the tints. So yeah, they aid with learning difficulties, visual perception, social perception and face blindness to a degree. So that, that's what the, they do for me anyway. So they help with 
be getting around the world uh, visually. It's interesting that having these glasses enabled you to process information differently. Um, I I had heard of it and I didn't realize that used different tints uh, in order to yeah make these connections between different parts of your brain easier. Yes. So what I can hypothesize when I had the brain injury, um, the, the back of my brain was probably damaged. Uh, and that's to do with, if you look at the function of the back of the brain, it's the obsidable lobes, which is about visual association and meaning. Um, so, and it also makes sense what I said earlier about my mother thinking I was deaf and blind because it, again, it was to do with the way my brain was processing and perceiving this information. So when I got the tints, it was quite moving because I was seeing, you know, significant people in my life as whole people. Before that, they were just bits of things. Um, they, they weren't, they weren't whole things or, or they were sounds, but it was very ethereal. So it was grounding me um, to be able to actually, um, you know, access things in a more fluid way. I have one more question. So from what I understand is you met Joel through the Disability Expo when we went. Um, what was your overall experience or expectations? Because um, we went with one of our autistic friends as well, and he was quite disappointed by the lack of representation for autistic people. And it's more about the physical disabilities that were shown rather than the invisible disabilities. Uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting observation. I suppose because I hadn't been to the, this um, this type of disability expo before, um, I, I don't really consciously think a lot of the time anyway. And if I do, it's usually because I have to keep my mind on track um, to get somewhere. I mean, if, for example, I go into a supermarket, I still have to remind myself why I'm there and what I'm doing and what I need, because I get so easily distracted by colours and shapes and things that grab my attention and, and can completely sidetrack me and make me feel um, nice, but it, to the detriment of looking peculiar or odd by other people. So when I go to physical events, I, I, I'm very much, my conscious mind is not always on track. However, when I went there, and I suppose looking at it in retrospect, yeah, it was quite noisy um, because noise travels, so it goes upwards. Um, the tints helped me to a large degree in able to access uh, the physical visual space. So I was able to talk to people and network with people. Um, and I appreciate that everybody's experience of that place will, is highly individual. I suppose on, on reflection, what the gentleman said about invisible disabilities, yes, I suppose that that was the case. However, you know, for me, it's about the, the learning curve of the, you know, disability, if we're going to use the word disability. Um, it's a huge umbrella of different things, different presentations. 
So, it, yes, it was very different from going to, let's say, an autism show or an autism-specific place, but I would be intrigued on how the Disability Expo could cater to those needs. Um, if we're thinking about, you know, a quiet room, headphones, noise cancelling headphones, sunglasses, etc., you know, you could be quite inventive with it, I suppose. But I, I personally, I enjoyed it, despite some of the challenges. Um, when we spoke about this, this was an episode that we did um, in the beginning of a series where you spoke about the expo, episode three. And yeah, me and Julia enjoyed it. And um, it was great to see so many disabled people in one place. But at the same time, though neither of us are autistic or have um, like uh, sensory processing disorder or anything, or anything like that, we did find it um, quite overwhelming. And we thought, yeah, this could be an issue for people, um, you know, with so much noise and so quite crowded and that sort of thing. Yeah. And in the end, even people without these if you're in an artificial environment for a long period of time, like that environment, even people without the challenges that I've been speaking about will eventually get tired, fatigued, not be able to retain information as much, may get a headache, eye strain. It will eventually happen. I think with me, it just happens quicker. <laughs> it, 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 it will happen much quicker and much faster. Yeah. It is a very overwhelming environment. I will I will say that even for myself, like I had to leave after the one of the um media panels. Yes. That was over. I had to get out of there to take a breather because it was just getting a little bit overwhelming, not gonna lie. Yeah, the it was interesting how they done some of the the, the main speaker events in the middle. Um mm. and you could kind of hear them and also lots of other things going on as well i understand why they done it like that because um uh obviously you want to see and be aware of where the main speakers are but i suppose there is a there's a danger i suppose with these things and an understandable one that if you try and cater for everyone you might fear people getting it angry with you or you, you do you understand what i mean do you understand where i'm getting yeah and i can understand the pressure from the organizers that they've probably got a lot of balls metaphorically to juggle um and and think of all the different um um presentations of disability and how they can make ease of access in in and when you say access that's a whole huge thing from physical access for wheelchair users to other access-based things that you wouldn't readily think about that are actually stopping someone from entering a room or being in a in a room for a, for a prolonged period of time. I suppose it's all about education and, and awareness. And I try not to get angry when people don't understand my needs um, because I always feel... Well, firstly, I don't want to get angry all the time. <laughs> and and secondly, if they don't know, if they've got real gaps in knowledge, you know, real gaps where 
just couldn't go up to them and say, this is what I've got and you should be doing this. And you don't want to present it like that because maybe, A, they're not ready to hear it, which means that the conversation may not be um, as flowing as you would want it. And B, um, is a little bit of self-preservation. Is this worth it at this time? But I suppose in the context of an event, um, maybe if the people at the expo, um, you know, have have spaces where people can give honest feedback, you know, honest feedback about their experience, about what they would like at the next one, maybe that would be a more democratic and objective way of actually getting voices heard and people not feeling, I don't know, invalidated or um, feeling upset that maybe something wasn't looked into. I don't know what anybody's thoughts are on that. You literally stole my question. I was going to ask you about like, what <laughs> do you could have done to improve it? Wow, nail on the head right there. Yes, yeah. I, I, I can understand anger. I can understand frustration. It's a very human thing, isn't it, to be angry and frustrated but not all the time it doesn't do you any good and i i think um if if people can be objective and that includes disabled people we, one can be objective whether they're disabled or not and actually listen and feel listened and feel validated then hopefully um you know human beings are a funny often say in general we're quite funny creatures um, we, when when it comes to discussing different points of view, and it 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 often means that maybe you need a mediator, someone who can filter it all, all what different people are saying, and actually use it meaningfully, meaningfully um, later on, uh, so that people can can access these um, these events in a more fluid and hopefully more. Um, meaningful manner which makes them you can't force a positive experience on someone but you can at least give uh the foundations for a comfortable experience where people can do hopefully what they're they're aiming to do with it in the place so we're talking about anger and and being frustrated are there any jobs as a um as a consultant that have made you angry, maybe because they're not listening to you or they've done something really badly or anything like that? Yeah, over the years I have had um, anger where I've, I've, specifically when I was new to the advocacy movement, consulting, training speeches, etc. Um, yeah, I did have a few quite difficult experiences early on when I was younger and these um experiences were, were quite distressing it was how i i was being treated at a particular place of work a place of work which i thought was going to support me and in the end it didn't and it, it in the end it did make me temporarily uh, a bit cynical uh, i don't like cynicism in general but it was making me feel that way so I did have to leave um, that place um, and kind of rejig and refuel my mind and actually just have healthy space away from it completely to actually 
um, work out what I wanted to do next. But anger, yes, I think the anger came from something being said and presented as this is a place where you're going to be supported and it simply didn't happen. So I think the anger came from there. I wasn't bitter and I certainly don't go down the route of feeling like a victim. I often say that I've had experiences where I've been victimised, um, but I never actually feel perpetually like a victim. I don't. I think um, that that that's a trap all in itself. Um, you, you can't control other people. Uh, that is another thing that's aided me. You can't control their thoughts, what they think of you. Um, how they're treating you uh, in this context it was very nice but what can one do the, the best thing I done was actually take a step back and walk away and actually start thinking a bit more clearly about what I wanted to do what are the um like more common uh forms of discrimination that you have seen since you have uh started this advocacy um you, you, like you not can... it doesn't necessarily need to be personal you've experienced in like workplaces for yeah i think with workplaces let's let's use that as an example um it's all about you can break it down into a few different elements so you can break it down into the culture of work you can break it down into the staff members that work there you you can break it down into what the work work is so what type of work it is and what the person's going to be doing in theory um you should be protected so there's legislation um there's there's rights accessibility to work etc and then the legal aspect of when a disabled person is in the workplace within a workplace one would hope that someone's protected um or uh, at the very least accommodated for but accommodation there's a huge difference i suppose between accommodation and tolerance if you tolerate someone that doesn't necessarily mean that you want them there you're just tolerating their existence and i think there's a massive difference between valuing you and tolerating you and i've and i think there's i think what i've i've learned is that legislation can make things not in principle but by the fact that they they're sometimes oddly worse and i i, I say this with a level of irony you would think that if there were loads of pieces of legislation and rules and laws that people with with disabilities would be um, able to access work but sadly what happens is that people what I've people this is the acceptance of this it's not right what I'm about to say I accept it is that people you cannot force people to change their minds you cannot you could you could scream at them blue in the face about your reality and what your reality is and how this is affecting me but unless that individual is willing to learn 
and willing to internalize the information with an objective sphere that means that not only are they going to take that information in, but appreciate your reality and how it works. And I'm going to listen with the, the not because I have to listen, but because I want to listen. And I think those are two different things. So going back to your going forward to what your question is about discrimination, I think it comes from that area where people may have a little bit of knowledge, but not enough. And then some innocent things can be played out. However, this can still equally cause distress, even if the person's not meaning to do so. So then it's about having a team, uh, hopefully an egalitarian team of people within the workforce who are, are willing to learn and accept. I think the issue with work itself is that, let's be honest, when you go to work, you're working with people you, you may not see or want to be around within your social circles. And that's, that's the fact of life. So it's about a mixture of things, really. It's about the culture someone's in, the environment that a person's in, how they view leg legislation, and also how they are as people. Now, I'm not going to start doing the degrees of separation between disabled and non-disabled people, because I think we need to build more bridges than burn them. Do you understand what I mean? You need to create th these bridges of of being able to access each other's perspectives. But yes, there are things that happen and we have to gauge whether they're happening because people have said the wrong thing because of lack of knowledge or have they said that thing deliberately to antagonise, bully or exclude another person. And I think that is where we have to be mindful of intent and why people are saying and doing certain things. And one would hope that if the whatever happens, say the intent was real, it was meant to cause harm, one would hope then that you have a good HR department, you know, that are going to look at this objectively. Or unfortunately, sometimes you do have to get the union in. And... Um, you know that it, it's a difficult one I've, I've had that myself in my in my my experience of work and yeah it was extremely difficult because although my needs weren't being understood I tried and that's all I could do I tried to I tried my best to be a part of the team this was later on in my career but equally I, i've heard of other people another gentleman friend i i know who um who disclosed about his autism after getting the job not during the interview process and the manager said oh it's like dyslexia isn't it and that may have been a very real response we we can't judge that gentleman on the response but what what we can disseminate is whether he was willing to learn more and willing to build up his skill set rather than just be okay it's like dyslexia and I know what I'm doing um it's about um I always think with these things um and I've said it a lot today it's all about mindset what you're willing to learn 
are you willing to learn something that is completely out of your sphere of understanding? It's hard, isn't it? I'm sure all of us um, at some point in our lives have learned something that is out of the sphere of our own reality and thought, my goodness, I've never, I've never looked at it like that before. Or I didn't know that that person was experiencing things like this. So I think, you know, maybe we have to put a bit more philosophy into work you know, having a real firm ethos so that people actually feel, don't just feel included, but are included. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I, I think there's, again, a big difference between feeling and actually knowing that you're included. Huge difference. Um, you know, it, it's a horrible feeling, isn't it, when you're at work and you just know you're not a part of it. <laughs> um, and you just know that um, it doesn't matter what you do, you're you're not going to going to be a part of this this staff team, which is is not a very nice feeling. But we, I try and forgive these people, not not because I'm pious or because I'm I suffer from apathy. It's just the simple fact that um, I, I want I like closure on things, and even if people do me wrong, I want to learn a lesson from it no one's perfect <laughs> including myself yeah. absolutely i know that for sure uh cool we reached the end of this next session um i don't know if we have many more questions for you uh, julia and Lexi. um i do have a question not at all uh related if you could um, have any superpowers you could choose, what would they be? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I thought about this long and hard, and it's a really ridiculous one. I'd li like to... Uh, my friend who's on the spectrum likes superheroes, so I could be a television or a window or a door frame or a handle or a toaster. Or anything like that. So that is the superpower I'd want. I wouldn't. I don't want to fly. I don't want to breathe fire or have lasers come out of my eyes. I just uh, would like to be a toaster or something like that. <laughs> I'd be a good spy. If they wanted COVID, if they wanted me to spy, that'd be perfect. I'd be a toaster in a room. No one would know. I could hear everything. Um, yeah. That's a first. We never had that kind of answer yet. No. And what of it as a yeah. powers, like flying, talking to animals, or healing, things like that. That's a very interesting yeah. yeah. Yeah, being a sentient object. I love that. Yeah, it could be anything. You literally could be anything. Um, you could be, a you know, a, a, a bit of bark on the floor or a How tree. Is that? You can be anything. Saying that as a Barbie movie came out recently. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul Isaacs, for coming to talk to us about your experiences in education and I guess more actually employment and your consultancy business. Um, it's been really interesting to hear about you and uh, the sort of things that you do as a consultant and you, you know, visit other companies and stuff. Um, I mean, if we, I feel like we could have you on as a guest again and uh, just talk 
maybe catch up next season. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for coming to talk to us. Yeah, you've been lovely. Thank you. You've been all brilliant. Yeah, very nice, lovely experience. Yeah, it was lovely speaking to you all. Is there any, like, um, I don't know, like a website or a um, social media you want us to promote for you? Yeah, I, yeah I've got, I'm, I'm in the pro- process of updating my website, but currently, if you Google Paul Isaac's autism website, it's a Google site. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Paul Isaac's 22, and um, I'm on Instagram as well. I think that's also Paul Isaac's 22. Uh, and I've got uh, Paul Isaac's Consultancy Limited Facebook page. If you if you uh, search that, if if anybody's interested in hearing me talk or booking me. This would be like clearly a different day because we're wearing different clothes. So cool. Who wants to start? Because I don't. I don't like how I do most of the talking. That bothers me. Because you're good at starting it off and then we get the ball rolling. That's how it goes, apparently. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> okay, fine. Fine. <laughs> um, mm, give you a grumpy now, moody, miserable. <laughs> um, thanks for watching this episode. Um, we have some news in terms of the production of this podcast, I guess that um, we've said it from the start, like different people host and uh, co-host. So that was part of the reason we brought on Lexi, because we knew from the start that Julia would have to leave us partway through the series. Uh, and she does so now. Um, she's abandoning us. I start us. in a couple of weeks and I'm so sad. I but know. I will next episode, so that's, def- that's for definite. Um, speaking of the next episode, the next episode won't be for a while. We are recording it tomorrow relative to time of recording. Um, but there is an issue with production because I do all the editing and um, I'm still burnt out from July. Like, that is how intense July was for me. I was spending virtually every working hour every working hour, every waking hour working on this. Um and so and like I don't mind editing. I like editing, but I don't love it. And so uh, it's not something I'm passionate about. And so I wasn't getting to spend any time on my actual hobbies and stuff. And that by the way, damages the mental health to some extent. <laughs> and it was just as much as I loved it, it was insane amount of work um and so i hate to say it but i am the main reason why we are taking this break um and we heavily encourage it though that's that's what we're going to include in this episode is it's heavily um a heavy decision me and lexi both made with joe as well because we just saw how exhausted he is. Like, I think even in some episodes, you can tell that you are just gone. Like, towards the end of July, you were just gone to the world. And we were like, no, you are taking a break, whether you like it or not. And we don't like pushing things back, that's for sure. Um, we will still continue with the planned episode, with um, the next planned episode, whenever that comes out. So we don't um, miss the opportunity. Um, 
this has uh, actually been kind of a battle that uh, Joel has been doing virtually all of the uh, the editing and getting us all organized and together. The sheer amount of not just the hours, the mental fortitude that he's been putting into this to get this done, to get these videos out. Um, I get it, it's absolutely incredible. He has been the backbone, and so he's also been the one the most fighting taking any kind of a break. But uh, when I, I honestly was really happy when he finally said, Okay, yeah, maybe it's time to take a break because. That's kind of when you know it's bad is when someone says, okay, I kind of agree it's bad. And so the mother heading from us as well. Yeah. I mean, it was part, I I did concede partly because of these two mother hens. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I love you both for that because I did need that break. I I do need this break. Um, I just wouldn't be able to sustain this. Um, And yeah, I, I really thank you for your support in this because it's a hard decision for me to make as julia said it's it's so it i love it so much and it's like you know disability is such a big part of my life and talking about disability is a big part of my life and meeting disabled people also a big part of my life and so my podcast gives me all of that and yet it was just too much for me um and so yeah but yeah i was really I really wanted to keep going. I really, I love every aspect of making podcasts. Uh, the editing definitely is the hard part, but I love that too. Uh, oh, I like that at least. It makes up for everything. Uh, everything else makes up for it. Rather, I'll try and get my words in the right order, geez. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I was really hesitant to take this break. But after some persuading, Julia and Lexi both won me over. <laughs> it didn't like me. <laughs> so well done, you two. I'm very stubborn. I'm very... Uh, I, I'm one of those people who puts 100% of all I have into everything I do. And uh, that doesn't always work. So, um, what we're going to do is we're going to take this break to uh, do a number of things. So this break will have a number of purposes. I've not told Julia and Lexi this yet, so this is the first time they'll get to know. Um, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in all this, in, in any time that you are able to, I want you to do sort of research into podcasts because I've become very aware recently that uh, podcasts will like, operate in different ways and uh, the editing styles are different, so I'll look at editing styles to make our uh, our video in particular more uh, engaging. Um, I think the sorts of content we need to be aware of, um, you know, what sort of things are being discussed, because there are, lots, there are not lots. There are quite a few podcasts already out there about disability. So what is it that we can do better? Looking for inspiration, I guess. And also, I think it's also, because we'll be going through quite a bit of change as well, like you as the viewer, you can really influence what our content is like. You can tell us, okay, this part was good, but I think this part could be better. 
and you can really help us figure out what our podcast should be looking like. We have a good idea of what it looks like and what we want it to look like, but what should it look like? It's not all the same thing. Uh, so I think you as a viewer can help a lot in that way. Um, yeah, so I, I want us to do what we don't usually do, Julia, and that is I want us to plan more. Uh, we do need to like have a list of people who are ready to be interviewed and like uh, figure out the date and like rather than doing like as soon as it's ready, posting it, have some sort of schedule that's like regular enough, but also manageable for a total workforce of three. Because when you look at the podcast, like professional podcasts that have like post every day or every week or whatever, they have a massive team behind them. They have like five like professional full-time members who are working behind the scenes, each doing different jobs that they are highly qualified in. And we have three disabled people who aren't really qualified. Um, so we, I think we need to really think about um, what our posting schedule should be and what's realistic and manageable for a team of three. Um, so that's something that I will be taking this book to think about um, as well as recovering. So recovery first, definitely, followed by when we're ready to come back, what should we come back as? Mm-hmm. To clarify uh, one thing you just said, that um, uh, we don't have qualified people, we have three uh, disabled people. That's not actually the problem. The problem is we have one who is qualified with computers and understands all of that, and two people, well, I myself, I, I, I can't find the space bar on a computer. So uh, I'm completely worthless uh, there. And Julia knows uh, a bit more than me, but we have only one person who is truly computer qualified. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Computer so, literate. The word, computer literate. Take it to it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that might be something else that I do in our break or our posting break at least once we've recovered it might be that I start training up like two, two little assistants <laughs> with like the hosting part of it we'll all be equal co-hosts but uh, there'll be like editor assistant editor one assistant editor two so uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah that's um that's something else that we'll look at, and there's lots of things that we'll be experimenting and trying to come up with during this break. Um, so while it might seem that we are inactive, we will always be quite active behind the scenes or on social media or something. By the way, go follow our social media. Go do that, because um, as Julia said, that is the way that you will find out when we'll be back. Uh, we'll try and post more content there where possible. Uh, We've got some exclusive content coming up. Um, Julia and Lexi have been my assistants figuring out like the highlights because with episode one, two, and did we do three? I'm not sure if we did episode three or not. We had like, oh no, I meant ones that are already posted. 
No, no, up to three, because then I had we both did four, five, and six. So that's I thought one of you did three. No, anyway. I think it was just four, five, and six, and it was mostly two okay. of you who did. Okay, I've not noticed them yet, but I will. So I, Julia and a bit of Lexi, but um, the two of them have been going through past episodes and letting me know which bits, so I don't have to watch all those episodes again, which bits are... <laughs> Sorry, Julia. It's uh, terrible bits... to listen to your own voice, trust me. Like, I feel so bad for you who has to go through and edit it, having to listen to the same audio, like, 60 times. Because I'm just yeah. like, if I listen to my voice 60 times, I would rather not do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I'll be posting like those bits on our TikTok, our uh, Instagram, and probably also our uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, and the app formerly known as Twitter. Uh, my camera's frozen. Why is my camera frozen? And you're gone. Oh, here we go. There we go. I'm back. But yeah, so that's what I will be doing uh, following my break or before my break or something in my break. Um, so yeah, that's um, keep active on social media. That's something for us to do. Camera's gone again. There we go. Um, I'm back. Hey, I'm back. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's sort of like our. Notices, notices, is that the right word? Announcements that we have. This is a very long clip. It's going to be a two-minute clip. I think this turned into a 25-minute clip. This can be its own podcast at this point. <laughs> at this point, it could be. I don't know, you know, you can, like, cut it down, put it in, in, in that episode. The rest will be its own, like, little... Mini-sode. There you go. Huh? Announcement episode. Or announcement, announcement episode. Hi, 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 uh, hiatus episode. I, I couldn't say hiatus. Just no, a stroke. You have to have a clickbait title. You have to say, Big We are going on a break. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just be like, We're leaving you guys. <laughs> no, because oh. you use that friend's reference. I would love you for that. <laughs> we were on a break. <laughs> exactly. I would love you if you do that. No, we should do that for the episode after the hiatus. Because we're like, we were on a break rather than we are. Because that's the line, isn't it? We are not going to that line of references. Yeah, we'll modify the reference. Someone would get it at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think we've gone on long enough to make it a mini sode. But uh, <laughs> um, I think that's all of our, our announcements. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for supporting us because we, we couldn't have done it without your support. Um, yeah. Keep showing us love because that's what powers us through. <laughs> At least it does with Joel because Joel does the editing around here. So it powers Joel to keep going. I mean, it powers all of us to keep going, but yeah. Yeah. You're doing good, Joel. Don't worry. You're doing amazing. Thank you. <laughs> don't cry do not cry in this episode actually that could be like the um little um doll just falling his eyes out <laughs> <laughs> oh man we have not we have never made a thumbnail that's something else we need to think about 
Now, with thumbnails, I usually just screen grabs from, from the episode at some point. Or yeah. it's the logo, so... <laughs> Which happens at one point, someone is looking, like, just really... <laughs> it's really awkward screen grabs, too. I'm like, okay, fair enough, Joel. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even making it. That's all that automated. <laughs> I yeah. I, mean, I have no idea how YouTube works, but apparently that's how it works. <laughs> Unless you think... add a thumbnail yourself, it just uses a random snippet or something. Yeah, doesn't it give you like three options or something of which of a snippet? Yeah. Great. Well, that that does actually explain a lot. It really so... does. Sometimes I'm wondering to myself, like. If Joel really picked that, he would definitely ask for permission if it's correct or not, because <laughs> me looking like I just crawled out of a cave somewhere, it's not, it's not a good look. <laughs> um, I don't think you guys will be posting anything when I'm gone. Yeah, not really. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll decide we'll in the time. I'll take over the admin position, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, you'll be our administrator. I mean, I've got like a, th- a three, a two-day week for the entire first semester, so my free time, I can just be writing emails and stuff. Mm. Uh, cool. Joel is our computer technician. Uh, Julia is our administrator. I'm, 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 I'm the cheerleader. I'll be the cheerleader. She's just yeah. listening. Like, yes, 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 yeah. yes. From the very start, like Lexi was just like, "I'm not a co-host. I'm not a co-host. I'm just a cheerleader." That's what she would say from the very beginning. I'm like, "No, no, you are a co-host." <laughs> we need to get the anniversary of the of the when Lexi joined. Into what? Sorry. A one-year, like, uh, annual video that Lexi joined the team. Oh, jeez. <laughs> You're the highest episode. You're the highest-viewed episode on my channel at the moment. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true, that's true. See, so a one-year update is worth it. <laughs> okay, my one-year update is I'm just as screwed up as I was a year ago. <laughs> I-, I just have a bigger friend group. <laughs> oh man, you don't need to make me cry, guys. Stop it, I feel bad <laughs> enough already. Why? We forced you to take this break. Exactly. It wasn't for my own free will. I'm being held hostage. <laughs> I'm glad we'll, we're taking this break. As much as I'm reluctant to do it, I'm glad we are. The one thing I know that is when someone... Uh, Refuses help, refuses, refuses, refuses. The second they say, okay, maybe I do. Yeah, latch onto that and listen. Big thing I know. Listen. That's it for this episode of Ramped Up. We'll be back soon with another episode of Ramped Up, a podcast all about disability. I'm Joyce Bruss. I'm Julia Shenko. I'm Lexi Bushnell. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye.